Hello, everybody. Welcome. It's a Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. on the East Coast, 4 p.m. on the West Coast. It's really good to be with you tonight. We've got a really interesting show. We're going to talk about Facebook in a, in a very serious way. You know, we all regard it as a, you know, an ordinary uh, thing that just enters our lives and we use it on a regular basis if you're still on it. But really, it's much more than that. It's a national security threat. It's threatened democracy. It's now threatening your kids. It's become really quite serious. And we want to underline exactly what those threats are and talk about the new whistleblower, uh, which came out this week. And she, uh, you know, in devastating testimony, recounted exactly how Facebook has been ignoring all this uh, research. That's coming up today with two great guests, Dr. Emma Bryant and Dave Troy. We'll get to you in just a second. And I apologize for all this uh, bumpy start. It just happens occasionally. Uh, hi, Heidi. How are you? You know what? Maybe a bumpy start, but buckle in because it's going to be a great show. Ah, we got some nice. incredible, incredible guests. Yeah, we really do. And you're always uh, hanging out on the chat, making sure that people watching at home uh, can have their questions answered. So uh, tell people how they can find and where they should be uh, posting their questions. That's right. I'm going to be looking at our Twitter chat and you can go ahead and tag me at Heidi underscore Kuda. And we also have some volunteer viewers who are going to help curate some of the questions and we hope to get as many answered as possible. And it's really great that you're doing that. It's really helpful to all of us to have those questions come in and I'm sure you enjoy getting those answers. But now, before we get going any further on anything else, we have to do... Today was uh, quite a day, a lot of heavy news. And of course, Mitch Blinks, so many of the senators have had fun saying he folded, he caved. Uh, but the bottom line is that the Congress essentially has until December to work out um, our plan on health care and child care and climate change. And, you know, one thing we know about Mitch McConnell is he'll do what's right for Mitch McConnell. So I think that's what we saw today. And to be clear, he, he sort of blinked on the debt ceiling, that that's uh, one thing he was sort of uh, playing around with and threatening all sorts of doom and gloom. Somehow, I think Biden spoke uh, some sense into him. But I did like those tweets, especially from Sheldon Whitehouse. He was just a great way of turning a phrase. Um, yeah. Other big uh, news of today came from the uh, January 6th committee, which is investigating the events of January 6th, the insurrection, the attempted coup, call it what you will. They can't find at least one of the people that they're searching for, Dan Scavino, to give him the subpoena. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Clearly, none of these people are going to be availing themselves for an interview or testimony next week when they're supposed to show up. So uh, we expect that this will lead us all to court. They expect it'll lead them to court. Donald Trump expects that it'll lead them to court. But we'll see if he actually has any standing. Because at the end of the day, the White House and the current president can determine whether there's any executive privilege and whether these guys need to testify or not. That's right. And according to our friend Rich Signorelli, we need to see incarceration until compliance. Ooh, that'll be interesting. <laughs> yeah. One can only hope. Yeah. Hard times for uh, Donald Trump. This is the third story, Heidi. Yeah, this is really interesting. Uh, Trump, in the first time in 25 years, has been knocked off of the Forbes 400 list, and that's the wealthiest uh, folks really in the in the world. And um, we did the math, and it looks like he was short about $400 million, mm -hmm. which by my calculations is about what he owes Deutsche Bank. So. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he probably does he, he might even know them more. You know, he takes this thing very seriously. I know most of us wouldn't care less if we were on the Forbes list or not. But I know for Donald Trump, it is really, really serious for him not to be this. So you wouldn't want to be in a mile 
um, away from him today. You probably want to stay away from Mar-a-Lago if you, if you have that choice, if that's in fact where he is. I don't even know where he is today. Um, and then the, uh, the final story in the news today. Yeah, this is a real drag. Yeah, it's a really big story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Princess Haya, this is a story out of Dubai, and she describes her life as being hunted and haunted because her ex-husband was using spyware to hack her phone. And it's one thing to, we're kind of used to seeing this with political opponents, and it's a whole other thing to be using as a revenge with an ex. So it's really quite something. Yeah, this is really interesting because her daughter and the sheikh's daughter had escaped his clutches from Dubai in, through a very dramatic you know, attempt at escape. And it was pretty impressive that she was able to get the way as far as she did. But it seems in retribution, he's been hacking the wife's phone using, of course, NSO software from Israel. Not, I'm sure, what they planned the software to be used for, but another example of this Israeli hacking software, this malware being used in ways that it shouldn't. So watch that story. That uh, court case continues in London. Coming up next, <laughs> we have our Facebook conversation. We're going to talk to Dr. Emma Bryan and Dave Troy about Facebook. What can we do about the malware that has become our social network? We'll be right back after this. Hi, friends. Thank you for watching Narrative and Today's show is brought to you by Policy Genius. There's no better time to apply for life insurance. It's not just the temperatures falling. Life insurance rates can go up with each year you delay buying. With Policy Genius, you can compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. You can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing those quotes at Policy Genius. That translates to about $1,300 or more on life insurance by using Policy Geniuses to compare policies. Policy Genius licensed experts work for you, not insurance companies, so you can trust them to guide you through every step of the insurance buying process. Thousands of five star reviews on Trustpilot and Google attest to Policy Genius's excellent service. You can get covered in as little as a week thanks to their award winning policy that does away with medical exams in favor of a simple phone call. This exclusive policy was recently rated number one by Forbes, higher than any options from Ladder, Ethos, and Bestow. Just head to policygenius.com and in minutes, work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. Policy Genius will handle the paperwork and scheduling for free. They never sell your information to other companies or add on extra fees. Head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. And it's good to be back with you guys on Narrative Live. Look who's here. I almost promoted you, Dave Troy, to a doctor, or at least a water doctorate. Uh, so congratulations. <laughs> you get the first narrative doctorate that we've, we've ever handed out. It's nice to have you back on the show, Dave. And also, Glad to be Bryant, here. Uh, who's a researcher and a disinformation expert, a professor of all these good things that are very necessary in our lives these days. Welcome to the show, Emma. It's nice to have you on. Thank you. Um, so the big topic tonight, you know, we spoke a lot last night about Peter Thiel and about his influence over Mark Zuckerberg. And he's sort of, you know, able to not only influence him as a major investor of Facebook, but also, on the other hand, also being a contributor to a lot of the disinformation that we have out there in our world. So he was holding both sides of that scale. And then, of course, all of this happened just as a whistleblower came out in 60 Minutes and then again in front of a committee and in front of the Senate yesterday. And it was pretty damning testimony. This time it revolved around Facebook's willfully ignoring research that shows that their own products, Instagram, Facebook, and their other products are causing harm, especially to young women or teenagers. It's striking because we've never really had this kind of research from inside Facebook. We certainly know that uh, it can be very harmful. 
But to know that Facebook has had this research all along and not shared it with the public and not done anything about it, you know, goes back to the bigger concern around Facebook, which is, you know, what the hell are they doing over there? Because it seems to me that you've got something that is not only a threat to your kids, a threat to your home, but also a threat to national security and elections, um, if not more. So we're going to talk a little bit about all of that, but let's start first, Dr. Bryant. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your reaction to the whistleblower yesterday, and uh, we'll, we'll pick up from there. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it was mind-blowing to watch, um, but also just incredibly frustrating because, you know, as part of my research, um, I was deeply involved in exposing Cambridge Analytica in 2018. And, you know, we had great ambitions to try and uh, ensure that there would be, you know, profound policy outcomes uh, from, you know, the debate that um, unfolded, the revelations that, you know, were so shocking at the time. Um, and this just, you know, it's it was really depressing to watch. Um, it made... I, I mean, I, I already believe, you know, that, that um, you know, Facebook was um, uh, never going to be reformed. <laughs> but at this point, you know, I think this really just reinforced the message that actually this is beyond just a failing a social network. This is actually a weapon that has been created. These are positive decisions to ignore data they have so they are choosing to do these things because it's profitable and that is the most important takeaway here the harms are deliberate you know they are lying to us about it well i'm sorry but that's making them a, a lethal weapon and you know if you look at the very clear statements in the evidence that was presented by the whistleblower and the figures you know of how little they have done if it was a foreign country that was attacking us with that degree of efficacy, we would be reacting in a very different way. And I think that we need to take it that seriously. OK, I think that is a really important takeaway that, you know, this is a system that is being weaponized. And you look at the people within the company, many of them very well-meaning. Well, bureaucracies. Uh, you know, we learned from the Holocaust how bureaucracy and modernity can be weaponized with actions of, of sometimes well-meaning people just doing their job. And that seems to be what's happening is, you know, people are just doing their job and the logic of the system produces these results. Well, that's not something you can tweet and just, you know, change and it'll all be fine. Yeah, This is like the mafia. You know, the whistleblower is proposing is that, you know, we ask them to maybe change a few things. Well, you know, if the mafia just, you know, decides to not do crime anymore when that's their entire business model, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is an unrealistic picture. You know, yeah, they that we're haven't shown to us that before. They haven't shown us their willingness to change before. Dave, you know, I'm so struck by Senator Blumenthal's comment at the beginning of the hearings yesterday about it being really a lot like big tobacco. Uh, and he started equating big tech with big tobacco. Uh, the, the, the similarities are quite striking. Yeah, I mean, I think that narrative has been building for a little while. And, you know, one thing I think that uh, was very effective about Ms. Haugen's uh, testimony was that she framed this in terms of societal harm versus profit. 
And that was really the principal lens through which she was trying to explain this. And I think that a lot of us in the, you know, sort of disinformation and research fields have been looking at this from the standpoint of misinformation and truth and falsehoods and that sort of thing, and that that kind of thing can be harmful. And I think that's all valid. But in terms of, of an argument that can get through to Congress in a way that's effective, I think she she landed on something that worked really well. And I also think that she was very wise in the way that she took advice to seek a formal SEC whistleblower complaint mm-hmm. because that gave her a framework to work within that was extremely clear-headed and, you know, not rooted in necessarily, uh, you know, any kind of political landscape or anything else. She was simply just saying, look, you know, there's these opportunities that the company has had to choose safety and uh, societal well-being over profit, and they have consistently chosen profit. And, uh, I, you know, I think that's bad. So I, I share Emma's frustration in that so many of us have been kind of, you know, waving all kinds of flags about the harms that have been coming out of Facebook for years. But, you know, I will also admit to being a pragmatist and the fact that, uh, you know, she came up with a line of argument that seems to have resonated I think is good. And I think that uh, this big tobacco, you know, line of, of reasoning that, you know, you heard uh, Senator Blumenthal talk about, as well as uh, people on CNN, you know, uh, I think it was Brian Stelter that said to Nick Clegg, you know, like, I feel like I'm talking to a tobacco executive. We're we're tapping into Americans' memory of what, what 60 Minutes was like in the 1980s, talking about Jeffrey Wiegand and, you know, nicotine and all of this. So, I mean, there are parallels there. And to the extent that that activates the, the popular will to do something, I think that that's, you know, useful. And, and I think we're at a, an interesting tipping point as a result. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because uh, you, you mentioned the... Uh the value, or the, the values of the leadership there, or the people who work at Facebook, maybe having you know decent uh, intentions or good intentions. I'm not so sure anymore about um, you know Mark Zuckerberg and and uh, and um, Sheryl Sandberg. Sheryl Sandberg, sorry. You know, I'm not sure when I look at those two that they were actually seeing well motivated people. I am now beginning to suspect that the, they really are the worst of humanity. That they really might be just after the bottom line, obsessed with engagement. Every action they've done is being so cynical. It doesn't look like they're protecting democracy or, or, you know, national security in any way whatsoever. It just seems like they are just interested in money and that's it. Yes, I completely agree. I think the whistleblower is far too generous to Mark. I think lower down in the company was what I was referring to about, like, the workers who were clearly angry but still doing their jobs and you know like those people are part of the system and it's producing what it does because of the logic of the decisions that Cheryl and Mark have made yeah so you know you're right it's the leadership it's a major issue but I don't think taking them out of the company's leadership would change the system that has been created you know essentially it's a model that I don't think can be reformed Right, right. I don't, you're, you're absolutely right. I think it's just so much about engagement. And in fact, their share price is so tied to that engagement uh, figure continuing to climb even at these abnormal rates that it seems very hard to break away from that. You know, look at the. I, I might. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I wanted to maybe add to the point about, you know, maybe Zuckerberg's psychology and that. I've heard some people that work in the field of psychology describe, you know, some people that, you know, get into the, the uh, you know, founding of tech companies 
sometimes what they're trying to kind of do is to shape the world in a way that's that so that the world makes more sense to them. <laughs> and, you know, if, if you're maybe Mark Zuckerberg and maybe you're a little bit on the so-called spectrum as, as you know, many of us are and, you know, uh, you're trying to make the world be friendlier to your worldview, you're going to create these systems that shape the world in a certain way. And he's got the capacity to do that. And I think that, you know, to Emma's point, this thing has been designed to kind of function in a certain way. And I'm not sure that at this point, now that that design is enshrined, uh, how easy it would be to change that. So, I, I, you know, and I think from you can kind of understand that he might not understand that this is what he's done. But in fact, I think this is what he's done. It's so interesting because a lot of these tech moguls have started so young. You can't imagine anyone having that kind of power at such a young age. And yet, yeah, they get flung out of, you know, university and then suddenly into the spotlights. There's a you know, yeah. picture of, of him. From and how many ethics or philosophy classes did Mark Zuckerberg take before he embarked on this journey that required a massive understanding of <laughs> ethics and human behavior? Right. I mean, uh, you'd expect yeah. someone to... You know, you know how, how long has he spent considering that? <laughs> you know, well, he's not a typical guy with normal problems, is he? You know? <laughs> no, 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 not at this point. He's not getting, you know, feeling insecure by his Instagram, I bet. But, you know, you've got to, or maybe he is these days. Um, you know, this is a picture of him from time of the, from when he was person of the year in 2010. Uh, and, you know, a more recent picture of him on the right. I mean, it's certainly, I mean, this looks like a child really being handed these reins to so much data, to so much power. And, you know, kudos to him. He's been able to hold it together, but still, Many say that the way he's done it has been, you know, really no regard to ethics and, and really in a very, some would say, underhand kind of way. These days, the veneer that he had of being this, you know, super brilliant, super capable young guy, that has fallen away. He's no longer that person. Well, I also, when I see that image, I see a troll. I see troll of the year because if you look at where he started with Face Mash, I mean, I have a son who was raised on you know, the interwebs, and he wouldn't have done a hot or not type thing because you just don't do that. Right. So I think there's always been kind of that that undercurrent uh, in him. And I do want to say something to Dave's pragmatic point that one of our viewers, Jim Stewartson, and a good friend of Narratives, pointed out that between the outage and yesterday, Telegram gained, uh, gained 70 million new users. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that is kind of the playing field that we have to deal with on a practical level. And Telegram is a, you know, is a Russian messaging service, really. There's no, there's, there's no other way to describe it. It certainly seems to flow directly out of the Russian state. It certainly claims to be a private company, but it's not. So you might, you know, as you look at who might be responsible for the outage, let's talk a little bit about that. Who, you know, who is responsible for that outage uh, yesterday? What was the reasoning that they gave? Certainly was that there was some sort of internal issue that happened, but a lot of people suspect I can, it was a I, I don't know that oh, there's any point on no. speculating beyond this, you know, honestly, because the problem is that, you know, we, we, the reason you say that is because we can't trust a single thing that comes out of the company mm, now. Right. It probably was the truth. You know, <laughs> usually the simple, yeah, you'll never know. <laughs> it's usually the truth. Yeah. Um, uh, but the point is that we will never know. Right. We will never know. Well, we might know if, they, yeah. you know if there are releases of the of the data, which some people have been speculating could happen. Then we'll know it's something that's happened. I would say that the things that we can know based on the forensic evidence are that they something appeared to have erased their BGP routes from the internet, which basically means that their IP addresses for all their servers just went offline. Mm -hmm. 
the other thing that happened was that their DNS servers, which are their domain domain name servers that convert names like Facebook.com and WhatsApp.com into IP addresses, also went offline because the BGP routes went offline. That's about all we know for sure is that that happened. But why that happened and who caused it, we don't know. It's interesting that workers arriving at the Facebook offices yesterday couldn't get access to the offices. They couldn't use their own internal messaging service that they've built for themselves because, you know, their mission is about world domination. And yeah. yet they've dominated so much of their own work environments and their own workspace that they got themselves uh, taken out of their out of commission. A lot yesterday. of that was just really bad network design. And much of that could have been fixed with just a little bit of common sense network review. Yeah. And the fact that they didn't catch it just speaks to their massive hubris. When you look at Facebook's entire world, I mean, you look at the messenger service, you look at Instagram, you look at WhatsApp, you look at Oculus, this is more than just one social network. I mean, they control a massive amount of our ability to talk to each other these days uh, and a massive amount of data. It's not quite a monopoly, but it's about as close to a monopoly as you could get. How significant is the amount of data and control that they have over messaging well, it's huge. You know, my students, I talk to about Facebook and a lot of them, they're younger. And, you know, they say to me, well, oh, I don't really use Facebook so much because it's older cohorts who use it. But then you ask them, oh, but do you use Instagram? Do you use WhatsApp? And of course they do. And then you, you educate them about the data sharing. And then, you know, the fact that these apps, you know, are tracking them across the internet and things like this, and they don't, then they start to understand you know, the absolute monopoly over our lives that these companies have. And it's not just Facebook. We need to start thinking a lot more about, you know, Google, Amazon. Um, You know, we are under constant surveillance. And this is, you know, just not acceptable. We absolutely need, as the whistleblower said, proper privacy legislation. And I did feel like finally Congress yesterday were taking this seriously, But we have gone here before. So I think, you know, we need to keep up the pressure. Absolutely is just disgusting that these companies have monopoly. And, you know, saying that tackling the monopoly won't actually solve the issues is a little misleading because, okay, it's not going to solve the problem of, you know, the amplification of uh, hate and, and so on. But it actually will, you know, solve an awful lot of issues when it comes to, you know, like the way that Facebook business model has completely and totally corrupted our uh, digital infrastructure. We absolutely can't have the reproduction of this kind of endless expansion of these companies. So we need to take this seriously. Um, And it's not good enough to say, you know, that's not the solution. That might be part of the solution. And we really need to look at that seriously. Can we discuss a little bit about how deeply involved they are in all our data? Can you, Dave, maybe describe what really happens when a Facebook app is installed on your phone? How much data they really are able to harvest from you? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is we don't really know because they don't really disclose what's really going on most of the time. Um, So, you know, we can only kind of infer. But, you know, I would say that the most powerful capabilities that they have are really the network connections that emerge from each individual person's profile. So that includes all their friend uh, connections, all their interactions with friends, all of their interactions with brands and pages and uh, with groups. Uh, So they actually have an incredible amount of detailed information about how our society functions as a whole. 
So, you know, I think it speaks to the incredibly low expectations that we have, you know, out of our companies, uh, you know, in, in this sort of, you know, I, I refrain from saying capitalistic system because I'm actually a believer in capitalism, but I also think we need to put guardrails on things where, you know, we just have such low expectations when, in fact, you know, we could be asking Facebook to help make society better. And all we're asking them to do is to try to minimize harm right now. And so, um, you know, they have just incredible information about locations, um, about, you know, all of our preferences and, and what sort of cliques we fall into and how to make us angry and how to make us happy. And they know everything about us. And they and hack so, everyone else's, every other piece of data you have on your phone. And they're well. importing and correlating with every other piece of data they can possibly find in order yeah. to make all of that better and to make advertising work better. And so, you know, I think there's a few different things that are in tension here. I mean, one is they've said that if they had to, you know, fully moderate uh, everything that they have coming their way, they, you know, might not be profitable. Well, okay, you know, like that's a thing, I'm, that's something I'm willing to risk. You know, let's try that, see how it goes. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the kind of the thing is that um, these things are intention. And so what, you know, Ms. Haugen was saying was that, you know, basically they're making decisions to maximize for profit and basically skimp on things that would lead to safety and data protection and lessen societal harm. And, you know, they could be doing an awful lot to help society. The other thing that I thought that Ms. Haugen identified that was very prescient was the idea that so much of their decision making is driven by short termism and the fact that uh, you know they're creating this toxic space that then people are choosing to leave which in turn is lowering their long-term prospects people now have a very unfavorable brand image of Facebook people are now leaving Facebook in droves as where a few years ago it was seen as kind of positive and useful. And so while many people now feel kind of stuck with it because that's where their friend networks are, that's where the groups that they're interacting with are, that's where they're raising money for their fundraisers, I, I don't know how many people really feel positively towards Facebook right now. And so if they instead opted a, uh, you know, a, a long-term oriented business strategy, they would be optimizing for cultivating goodwill. And they're not doing that, which is, in my mind, as a business person, insane. Yeah. It does seem to me that their main business these days is just the connection of old friends. I mean, it really, if you, could, if you could copy that into a different service, it would be quite popular, one would think, if someone could... Uh... I, I operate an 11,000-person uh, civics group in Baltimore where, you know, people are getting their news about local matters. And, you know, I wish there was some other place to do that effectively, but I, I'm stuck there right now. That yeah. group is stuck there. That's 11,000 people dealing with civic issues that are stranded. Yeah. So I think, you know, that issue needs to be addressed. Go ahead, Sorry. Dr. Bryant. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I also think it's interesting just how hard they're working to get to younger audiences. Mm. And I think that's something that comes out through the whistleblower testimony. And, you know, they feel threatened right now, I think. That's what it shows, is the desperation, the desperate lengths they will go to, you know, for the sake of keeping that profit margin as high as it'll go. So, you know, I think that Francis has kind of revealed the most shocking aspects of it were what she revealed about the harms that can be done through this. I mean, that is the stuff that really, you know, she was able to speak to the best. And I think the radicalization of politics was, was something that I think most people missed a little bit because, you know, we were looking at the, you know, harms to teens and so on. 
but actually, you know, she stated something that was really important about how it incentivizes policymakers. Um, because this kind of need for the radical content um, is actually shaping their policy choices. And we create a system where people become more radicalized, their politicians become more radicalized. And the whole thing is like a cycle that gets worse and worse. So, you know, we need to remember that. And I think that was something that's been lost a little bit, you know, in the discussions around this. I think it made a really important point. Facebook has changed the way we do politics, basically, by yeah. just be encouraging extremism and uh, polarization. So it doesn't really matter anymore whether a politician tells the truth. As long as they are in some way inflaming the, the situation, they'll get noticed. Um, and they're competing with the other politicians. Yeah. You know, they're, they're all competing to be for more engagement, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's changing the entire policy discussion. Right. It's done real harm to, to our system in general. Um, Heidi, what are people saying in the, in the chat rooms? And then we'll get into some more of the details around uh, Cambridge Analytica and some other things. I don't think we're ever going to be able to quantify the damage that's been done. And of course, we have two Cambridge Analytica experts with us. So they, they, that is something that our viewers would like addressed. You know, in 2017, we thought this was it. Lights out. They're going to break up the monopoly. Uh, they were very reluctant to admit to the scraping that was done and the whole uh, Cambridge Analytica impacts globally. Um, So I think that is one of the subjects that our viewers would like addressed. And then, of course, there's multiple others, but that seems like a pretty good place to start. Yeah, let's talk about it. You know, it was way back in, what was it, 99? I don't even remember when the original research was done by Alexander Kogan. Um, about these quizzes and about how face, well, you'll tell me the year, I'm sure it'll be much more accurate than my recollection. But they did these quizzes, right, that were able to psychographically analyze users. And we all took part of them. We all said we wanted to be more like whomever in Sex in the City, or we thought we were, or the quiz told us we were more like whichever character in the Sex in the City. But, you know, it turns out that that was all used for very different reasons. Tell us a little bit, um, Emma, what that was all about and and what what happened with all of that. So essentially, they were mapping Facebook data from people's profiles onto personality tests um, that, you know, uh, with a method that had kind of been, um, the data collection had been done by a professor, Alexander Kogan, at uh, University of Cambridge. You know, the data was being repurposed uh, without people's knowledge from from Facebook profiles that they had gathered, but also the friends of friends. And that is the, you know, important aspect because it scaled in a way that, you know, um, was, was really quite deceptive, you know, without people's consent. And this was all being done because Cambridge Analytica with, you know, the Mercer's funding was breaking into the American market. And if you want to, you know, run a campaign in the United States, you need social media data. At the time, it was quite common to use social media data and had been for some years, Um, but it had recently become more controlled. Now, you know, obviously a lot of other companies uh, had access to, you know, large amounts of data, but this British company wanted to compete. Um, So, you know, the issue as well is, you know, how much did Facebook know about uh, the data collection that was going on? Um, And, you know, the, the, um, the data wasn't just uh, used 
without consent. It was also used extremely unethically in these campaigns, you know. Uh, so Cambridge Analytica were doing things like, you know, targeting fear-driven messaging to neurotics, which I've talked a lot about, and the potential, you know, driving fear among people that are, you know, already very highly anxious through using conspiracy theories, which have been so prevalent in, in recent campaigns, is something that we have absolutely no data on. You know, there are a lot of people who say Cambridge Analytica, well, you know, it didn't really work or whatever. Well, their internal data shows that that did work. It was, you know, creating higher levels of engagement. So I think it's really important to learn lessons from this on what we do about companies like Cambridge Analytica. And they also need regulation. It seems to me that they've actually, you know, without Facebook, we would not have had QAnon in all likelihood. We would not have probably had Stop the Steal when you look at the amount of engagement around Stop the Steal on, on January the 6th. Thank you for spending your time with Narrative and stay tuned. There's much more to this conversation in our next episode. Narrative is made possible by viewers and listeners like you who join at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Join today and support truly independent journalism. Patreon.com forward slash narrative.